Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Marianne Tooby, editor of humanprogress.org and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and Gail Pooley, an associate professor of business management at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Together, they are the authors of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Welcome to Free Thoughts, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. I'd like to start off with a thought experiment that I often enjoy, which is that if you gave someone a time machine, an average person living in, say, 500 BC, let's say they're living in French Gaul or what would become Gaul, and they're an average person and you give them a time machine and they go forward to the same area, uh, France in 1000 CE. So they go they go forward 1500 years to the same area of central southern France. How much difference in life would that person have to adjust uh, it, to that 1,500-year time travel span? Not very much. Uh, the uh, speed and the scope of technological progress uh, prior to about uh, 1800 was very slow, and uh, appreciation in standards of living was very, very slow indeed. Now, during since really the agricultural revolution about 12,000 years ago, there were the occasional efflorescences of uh, prosperity. Occasional times in human history when standards of living may have maybe doubled. Um, things that come to mind are like Song China or maybe even Rome of the Antonines in uh, 100 AD when there was plenty of uh, uh, security trade was really humming along the Mediterranean and uh, and and life was generally better than when there was warfare and what have you. But um, uh, the fact remains that uh, you could even take your experiment and uh, compare standards of living of somebody living in, uh, say, Egypt, 3000 BC, and then compare them to, um, you know, a, a peasant in uh, 500 AD or even 1000 AD, and they wouldn't be that different. And there's an interesting fact there too, which... I always think is is not often discussed that even the idea of time travel in the way that we talk about going to the future, especially going to the future and saying things are going to be wildly different in the future. We know just that we expect them to be different. We expect them to have technologies that we can't even comprehend. Even that idea of thinking about the future as something that will be better and different is itself relatively new and tied to the type of growth you were talking about, Marion. It is tied to the notion of um, sustained innovation. So people have always innovated. Uh, you know, we have innovated uh, or we have invented eyeglasses in, say, uh, 12th uh, century AD. And that was very important, uh, not just for people's welfare, but also their ability to continue to work in their craft. Um, we have uh, gotten hold of fire about 1.7 million years ago. So there were these instances where humans have either invented something or innovated something. Um, but um, those sorts of innovations have been very sporadic. Um, when economic historians talk about modernity, and by modernity I mean the last 200 to 300 years, they talk about a period of sustained innovation, meaning that our political and economic institutions are set up in such a way that um, um, it is possible for people to continuously uh, ping off each other's ideas, to constantly read what uh, research has produced on the other side of the world and then try to improve upon it or try to critique it and show it to be nonsensical. And that kind of thing, this sort of period of sustained innovation, is dependent, uh, as we argue in the book, on a couple of factors. One is that we have simply many more people who are applying their minds to research, right? Um, Bronze Age starts in about 3000 BC. At that time, you only had 14 million people. That's one four million people living on the entire globe. As late as 1800, it was just 1 billion people. Now there are 8 billion of us. So having more people, of course, allows us to innovate more. But, but another crucial aspect of, of sustained innovation is that you have to have the political and economic underpinnings, setting, uh, incentive structure, uh, so that people keep doing it. 
Angus Madison, who is really, though, one of the world's recognized authorities on economic history in 1999, he writes this article for the Wall Street Journal. And the title of the article was uh, Poor Until 1820. So if you wanted to know about what conditions were like, uh, Angus Madison was kind of the guy to go to historically. And, you know, as far back as he could look is we had this flat line, $2 a day. Everybody's kind of living on $2 a day. And then suddenly, 1820, this this horizontal curve starts to go vertical. And uh, he attributed it to a number of reasons. I think we can go back to, as Marion suggested, you know, how many people were on the planet and how easy was it for people to discover new knowledge and then share that new knowledge. So before the printing press, it was really expensive to share knowledge. Uh, that innovation allowed people now to, to begin to share knowledge with one another. And that sharing of knowledge had this effect of growing new knowledge. So this, this ability to kind of go, uh, we've got people, they have ideas, and then they can share their ideas. And then, and then the key uh, uh, element in the equation, did you have a political and a cultural system that allowed people to actually act on their ideas, to take that idea and actually do the invention, you know, create the invention? And then did you have did you have a place where you could go and test the value of that invention? Did you have a, a, an open market, a free market where other people could vote on whether or not you had created value or not? So we see all of these things that, that really 200 years ago kind of start. Um, um, let me give you one example, which we do discuss in the book. Um, three different ancient Roman writers talk about uh, the same example of a man who comes to Emperor Tiberius and he presents him with an unbreakable glass. And the emperor asks him, have you shared this knowledge with anybody else? And when the inventor says that he has not, Tiberius puts him to death because he does not want um, this particular innovation to really upset the status quo by, for example, making all the uh, very expensively made, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, say jugs and uh, and cups which were made of precious metal, um, useless. Now, two things strike you about this particular example. One is that when an inventor has an idea in the ancient world, he goes to the king or to the emperor. He does not go to the venture capitalist and say, "Hey, can I sell?" this idea to you. Um, and, and the second point is, of course, that uh, innovation is discouraged because, as I said, it upsets the status quo as opposed to the condition of the marketplace right now where people with loads of money are constantly on the lookout for a world-changing idea, a new app or a new way of communicating or a new drug. So the ancient world uh, is fundamentally different from our own. Where we where we simply where we simply have abandoned this notion that status quo, state stasis is is the natural order of things. Uh, our minds uh, have completely shifted in terms of how we perceive reality, how we react with the outside world. We want to improve it conscientiously, uh, which which our ancestors did not. Well, sure. I mean, there are people out there, as Gail said, that that make ideas that invent things and, and make the world a better place. But given the 8 billion people that are on this planet, that cannot be the case that, you know, all those people are out there inventing something and making everything better. I mean, we know that if you put, you know, if you tripled the population of beaver or elk in some given ecosystem, they're going to crash that ecosystem and most of them are not going to survive. So I grant that we sure we have innovators, but like, how can that, sustain 8 billion people? Well, first of all, I'd say that elk and beaver don't innovate. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't really have the capacity to think out into the future and actually look at all of these things around them and come up with new ideas and then share these ideas with one another. So I think that's one error that biologists made is by studying animals and then applying their results in an animal environment to human beings. I think there was a fundamental error there. Human beings are this species that have this uh, ability to create like no others and then share their creations. 
in terms of the number of creative people on the human uh, or creative people on the planet, uh, yeah, we're approaching eight billion people. But but you know, it takes these like one or two really good ideas that can totally change the planet, and we don't know who that person might be. Um, uh, all eight billion of us are not Steve Jobs, but it doesn't take very many Steve Jobs to be able to have this, uh, you know, to really dent dent the universe <laughs> in terms of his effect. So that contribution that an individual can make to the rest of the planet can be can be phenomenal. So we we really trust that uh, we have more people and they're free to innovate. We're going to see ourselves lift one another through this process. Yes, our work does not assume that every single person living on Earth is going to be an innovator. In fact, studies show that uh, a small fraction of humanity innovates. Maybe, well, it's 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 low single digits, somewhere between three and six percent, for example. The point that we are making is that if the world is going to have only three hundred million people, like uh, the world at the time of Augustus or Jesus Christ. Um, that that small fraction is going to be so much smaller than today when you have 8 billion people. So the fraction of the innovators can stay the same, but the larger the population, the more likely you are going to have these new and world-changing ideas. Yeah. One more thing is we go back to 1800, we had a billion people on the planet. Today we've got 8 billion, we've got eight times more people. But not only do we have an increase in the number of people, but life expectancy has also dramatically increased. In addition to that, the time that people have to devote to creative activities is also much greater. So uh, the time that people uh, would take to just earn the money to buy their daily food has dropped uh, dramatically, and that's allowed people to have much more time to pursue these creative activities. So we really see this double effect. A lot more people living a lot longer with a lot more time. So that resource of time to pursue creativity is really grown exponentially last 200 years. But how sustainable is this? I, I mean, we look around and, and uh, maybe not in the first world and, and maybe because in America we're, you know, we're predating on, on the developing world or the third world, but like you go to a third world country and it's, it's a lot of people uh, who's just the amount of people there creates a lot of, of environmental impact. Um, and if they all start consuming at the level of Americans, uh, which would be, would be a huge change in the resource use, it doesn't seem like we, we, yes, I can grant your data in your book and say things seem to be getting better, but it's, it seems it could also be a blip based on a short-lived uh, use of resources that are not going to be there for future generations. So it's just not sustainable. And we should care about future generations. Not you know They don't currently exist, but we should care whether or not we take everything from the earth and leave nothing for them. Yeah, I, I would just say we absolutely do care about future generations. But um, w when, you, when you go back to this idea of what really is wealth uh, that we enjoy, that we consume around us, Wealth is really knowledge. Thanos, in his, his uh, little argument that he made, he said the universe is finite. <clears throat> and then he said its resources are finite. Well, you know, the earth really is finite in terms of the number of atoms. We, we, we've kind of got this set number of atoms. But it's not finite in terms of resources because we convert atoms into valuable resources when we apply knowledge to them. And... Uh, you know, economics is not about counting atoms. It's about observing how value gets created and this ability to discover new knowledge and then share it with others in markets. It doesn't appear that there's any kind of a, of a limitation there. Um, for example, we, we use this analogy of a piano. A piano has got 88 keys, but how many songs can you create with a piano? How many different potential combinations of songs that you could create with a piano. So it's really kind of infinite. And that's, that's I think, the, the shift in our thinking is we've got to move away from counting atoms, because they are fixed, um, to, to thinking about how value is created. And that's with knowledge. And knowledge, once again, does not appear to have this, this kind of limitation. Yeah, uh, Gail likes to say that whereas uh, atoms have a obviously a physical limit uh, in terms of how many we have on Earth, 
uh, knowledge, new ideas are not restrained by physical limits. They are just restrained by uh, the number of people and their ability to express those ideas. Um, on, in terms of what Gail said about knowledge, um, Thomas Sowell has a great, fantastic quote when he says, that the Stone Age man had exactly the same amount of resources that we have today. The difference between his standard of living and our standard of living is the knowledge which we are, which we have brought to the resources that are in existence. Um, the new knowledge which the Stone Age man did not have. Um, another, I think, um, another aspect which people often misunderstand or don't understand at all is that just because we are using something at this particular moment in time which powers our civilization or improves our standards of living, uh, and that has finite quantitude, does not mean that we are going to be using that in the future. Um, a perfect example of this, well, I mean, a, a good example of it would be that we no longer use whale oil uh, uh, or fat uh, to light candles to, um, to, to read by. Um, today we are using electricity, which can be generated from anywhere, from, from sun and wind to, uh, to gas and, and nuclear. Uh, so, so that would be one example. But the more recent example that I was thinking about is, as you know, the world is undergoing this change where more and more of our cars are electrically powered cars. And uh, those cars need batteries. Well, the, currently, the best technology that's available out there is lithium-ion batteries. So, of course, you can just Google articles about what is going to happen to lithium um, supply. You know, how many years of lithium do we have left? Are there going to be wars over lithium? You know, um, are, are the prices going to spike? And then a couple of months ago, uh, MIT researchers, or maybe it was somebody else, have come up with a with sodium ion uh, battery, uh, which apparently is uh, even better, and sodium is just salt of which we have a lot. And then, and then when we switch from lithium-ion batteries to sodium-ion batteries, then maybe in ten years' time somebody will come up with another ion battery which is even better. So, um, so resources um, resources are the, the number of atoms are finite, but but we manage to get around the problem of scarcity in many different ways. One of them is, of course, that we use less of something. Instead of uh, using 85 grams for a can of Coke, we now use 13. We also um, we also substitute, as I said, uh, instead of whales, we use uh, uh, we use. Um, uh, we use electricity. And, and finally, what we do is that we are constantly on the lookout for efficiency gains, right? That's the beauty of capitalism. In, a, in, in the pursuit of profit, corporations have all the incentive they need in order to spend as, as little money on inputs in order to increase profit on outputs, right? So why would you use more uh, iron or steel or copper than you absolutely have to in order to produce your product when you can save some money uh, and and not have to spend it on input. So, so these are just some of the ways in which humans um, in which humans cope in a world of, of of finite atoms. Yeah, I'd add to that. Uh, you know, when you when you go to this to this market to buy a loaf of bread, what's more important to you: the number of loaves on the shelf or the price? You know, if you walk in and say, "Wow, there's only five loaves of bread on the shelf. Looks like we're going to run out." Or do you, do you look at the price? I think the price is more important to you. And that's what a, the, the difference between economic thinking and this thinking like a biologist or an accountant or an engineer. Economists pay very close attention to prices because prices contain this information about relative scarcity. And it changes people's behavior. Price goes up, you get, you get a different behavior both from, from buyers and sellers. Price goes down. You, you get a, a much different behavior in that event. So as we look at prices, prices should be telling you about scarcity. So when prices go down, it says something's happening to supply and or demand that uh, is making this thing more abundant relative to other products. Now, what we also did in our research is we moved from a money price to a time price. And the reason that we did that is we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with our time. So if we can measure things in the amount of time it takes you to earn the money to buy something, we think that gives you a much more accurate picture. 
So the real uh, key to thinking about this is what is the time price doing over time to a particular product? Is it requiring more or less time? And what we found is almost without exception, all of these products that we looked at require less and less time. And that the interpretation of that is that this innovation process, this process of adding new knowledge shows up in the markets in these time prices, these little bits of knowledge that people are uh, discovering and sharing all over the planet. It's kind of like this Hayekian thing where he talks about knowledge being all over the place and it actually shows up in these, in, in these products and we all benefit from that because the time price now falls. Both uh, the price of the product and our incomes go up. Innovation also increases incomes. So if you have an increase in income and a reduction at the price, the money price, occur at the same time, then that time price is going down. And that was our observation. And we think that that framework, that perspective, really is the proper way to look at the world. Yeah, and and the reason why we use time prices is because, uh, as Gail said, and but it's worth repeating, is that when you look at nominal or real prices, money prices, they don't take into account what is happening to human wages. And uh, time price takes into account the effects of innovation on both prices of goods, but also on the amount of dollars in your wallet. Can you clarify by just giving like a, a more concrete example of sure. how you would look at yeah. time price? Sure. So, for example, let's say that a bar of uh, Hershey, uh, Hershey bar costs a dollar and you are making $10 an hour. So, obviously, you are going to get 10 Hershey bars. Now, let's say that in 20 years' time, a Hershey bar will cost $2. Let, let's assume the worst case scenario where Hershey bar does not fall in price, but it actually increases from $1 to 2 But your wages in the meantime increase from $10 to $30. So suddenly you're getting 15 Hershey bars, whereas before you could get only 10. Okay, but it's an interesting way of measuring wealth. Um, we'll get, I'd like to get into whether that actually measures wealth, but to return to the G- Gale's piano analogy, um, it's a it's a weird analogy you make in your book because you're talking about something ephemeral, uh, music, and and the, 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 I grant there's an infinite amount of music out there because it's not taking up anything when you make music, but there's definitely not an infinite amount of pianos, and if you lower the time price of piano to like let's say let's say it takes ten seconds of work for a human being to buy a piano to 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 earn enough money to buy a piano, well then we'll just take all the trees. And then suddenly piano demand goes through the roof. Everyone wants to learn the piano because no longer is it expensive anymore. And maybe we put a chip in our brains so we can learn it easily, take away the you know difficulty of learning. So we just take all the trees down and there's no more wood to make pianos anymore. That seems like a better analogy because if we lower the time price, eventually we just consume pianos, chocolate bars. There, I mean, would you not agree there's a finite amount of chocolate in this world too? Uh, I mean, it seems like we're, we're playing with ideas versus things. And there are fewer, there is a finite amount of things. There's a, there's a word in your title, infinitely abundant, I think. And infinitely seems like you're really stretching there. Well, there's certainly not finality of trees. In fact, uh, we have more trees in North America and, and uh, tree coverage is increasing all over the world with Two exceptions. One is sub-Saharan Africa, where it is declining marginally by very little. It's almost stabilized. And tree coverage is still declining in Latin America. Everywhere else, it's increasing because, of course, we can regrow trees, which we've been very good at doing, for example. But uh, the, 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 the example that uh, Gail uses about infinite number of songs is that they, they are really equivalent to infinite number of ideas which can be produced by the human mind. And Paul Romer uh, had this very interesting example. And he says, well, you know, you have your periodic table, which has 100 elements in it. Um, in order to create a two-element uh, compound, something like bronze, which is constituted of copper and tin, uh, you need up to 10,000 calculations, okay? So you need a lot of people making those calculations in order to come up with bronze. Once you get to four compound, uh, four element compounds, you need 94 million calculations. And once you start playing with 10 element compounds, the possibilities or the number of calculations are higher 
than the number of seconds since the Big Bang. So that gives you a sense that there is no way that the human race has had enough people and enough time on this earth to but scratch the possibility horizon of the number of ideas that are still to be discovered. Yeah, I would I would go back to this piano example and you talk about trees if we you know if we start cutting down all the trees what's going to happen to the price of trees? <laughs> They're going to it's going to go up and that's going to be a signal that look you've got something that's becoming more and more scarce and four things happen when the price goes up. The first thing is people use less of it. The second thing is that suppliers try to find more of it. They try to make more of it, to find more of it. They also, suppliers also look for substitutes. And then the <clears throat> fourth thing is, is we begin to recycle that thing. Now you think about a piano and it's, a piano is this beautiful, it's, it's almost like this large piece of jewelry that people have. You know, a Steinway, you look at one of those and it's like, this is a, this is a large piece of jewelry that, that is really the status symbol. Uh, are we buying a piano because we want the music or are we buying it because it has the status prestige symbol? If you think of the fundamental cost of creating music, uh, today it's never been cheaper. I mean, we moved from this physical piano made out of wood to, to instruments made out of other materials. And now we do these kind of virtual pianos on our computers. So the cost to be able to create music is is... A, a tiny fraction of it was uh, what it was 200 years ago. I mean, I just imagine what Mozart and Beethoven would have done if they could have had GarageBand today, and the ability to have this creative, uh, these creative tools for for almost nothing. So, uh, yeah, we do live once again in this physical world, but <clears throat> our ability to innovate and create uh, new products that serve the same purpose or even a better purpose is, is, is just have this phenomenal growth. One last point on this, which is that, you know, you, you, you asked about, uh, Trevor, you asked about the, 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 the usage of the word uh, infinitely bountiful. Um, I, I think that one of the things that people may, may underappreciate is may, maybe they think that just because you have now dug out a pound of, of uh, copper, or uh, maybe you have used a gallon of water, they may think that it is gone forever, but it is not. Uh, the Earth has exactly, almost exactly the same amount of atoms, uh, metals, minerals that we had, you know, millions of years ago. Okay, we shot a few pounds of uh, um, iron and copper and steel into space, right? But the rest of it is still here. It just needs to be reused. Um, some people, for example, are looking at uh, um, uh, the, the currently known reservoirs of fresh water, which are declining, partly because the price is so low that we don't have any incentive to go in search of new fresh water deposits, unless you are, of course, in somewhere in the Middle East or Sahara. Um, so, so that's one thing, is that we don't really know how much fresh water we have. And secondly... Even if it became clear that fresh water was running out, let's not forget that 75% of the world is covered by water, but it's the wrong kind of water. And so we substitute. What we do, we take that ocean water, we run it through a desalination plant, and then we are left with fresh water once again. So, you know, th there are so many different ways in which you can get around the problem of scarcity and bring about superabundance uh, on, on this planet. You guys have a lot of data in the book. Uh, if you are a data person, uh, it is full of graphs and equations. Um, I'm not going to ask about, you know, to summarize all of it. I, I definitely suggest listeners to pick it up. But insofar as you can say, what, what were your general findings? What did you go about doing to try and make it make the argument that things are getting better? And what were the general findings that you that you came up with? We began with this original bet between. Uh, Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. And our question was, would, who would win that bet today? 
So we went back and looked at their uh, original bed. Can you explain what that bed is, Gail, just for a sec? (laughs) So in the late 1970s, uh, actually uh, 1968, Paul Ehrlich, a biologist at Stanford, writes this book uh, called The Population Bomb. And he makes these predictions about about how we're going to have this mass uh, starvation on the planet. And it was a very popular book. It sold millions of copies. And there was an economist, this obscure economist, uh, Julian Simon, who picks the book up and he initially re- he reads it and he initially says, well, it looks like your argument does make sense, but he decided I, I need to go check the data and see what's actually happened here. And when he did that, he was unable to discover anything that had become uh, more scarce in terms of the price. And once again, the price is signaling this relative scarcity. So he publishes his findings and they have this... Uh, discussion back and forth. It was in Science um, Science Magazine, and and finally, in frustration, um, Professor Simon says, <clears throat> "Why don't you just pick one of these non-renewable resources, and I'll bet you that it's going to become more abundant." And um, so they went back and forth. They ultimately, uh, Paul Ehrlich, he had two partners. They picked five uh, elements. It was copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And they put a bet uh, for 10 years, 1980 to 1990. And so the bet was, was put $1,000 on the table and measure what uh, that $1,000, what it would cost to buy those five um, uh, non-renewable elements 10 years into the future. Well, 10 years elapses, and um, in September of uh, 1990, Paul Ehrlich writes a check to uh, Julian Simon for $576.07. The real price, the inflation-adjusted price of those five metals had fallen by 36%. So our question was, well, what? who would win that bet today? So one of the critiques, uh, a couple of the critiques was, you, only, you were really lucky. It was only 10 years. So we said, well, let's extend the period to 40 years. Let's start at 1980. And let's bring it up to 2018. And uh, then the other thing that uh, the critique of it, it was only these five non-renewable metals. So we extended our analysis from five to 50. We included uh, commodities in general. So we looked at energy prices, oil and coal and natural gas. We looked at food. We looked at uh, wheat and barley, meat. We looked at materials. So we looked at lumber, wool, cotton. We looked at other minerals, um, and then we looked at these metals, and we analyzed their time prices. That uh, we took the nominal prices. The World Bank um, publishes these prices every month, so we had this really good data that we could rely on to look at the nominal prices. And then we compared those nominal prices to uh, a proxy to uh, GDP per hour worked. So how much does the average person on the planet create? with one hour of work. The GDP per hour work served as our, as our denominator in this time price equation. So we looked at all of these time prices over this 38-year period, and we expected to find something that had gotten uh, less abundant. And we weren't able to discover not a single one. In fact, on the overall average from 1980 to 2018, uh, the average time price fell by 70%. And then we go back to this original argument uh, that Ehrlich and Simon had about this relationship between population and resources. At the same time this occurred, population uh, from 1980 to 2018 had increased by over 70%. So it's like every time you increase population by 1%, it looks like the time prices go down by 1%. So we were really astonished by this, and we thought, this is this really true? So we just dug and dug and, and said, well, let's go back to 1960 and look at the data. So we went go back to 1960, and the data starts to thin out as you go back in time, but we were able to identify 37 commodities and same kind of thing. So let's go back to, to let's go back to 1900. Let's go back to 1850. So all of this stuff is, is suggesting that that this abundance at a personal level, in other words, the size of the slice of the pizza for each one of us is getting two to three to four percent larger every year. Well, if you can hit three and a half percent a year growth, that means that you double something in size every 20 years. 
So every 20 years, you double. You don't go from one to two to three to four. You go from one to two to four to eight. So you get this exponential curve. So you step back and look at this perspective over this longer period, and you see this pattern emerge that says, wow, we're adding knowledge. We're adding innovation to all of these products. You think about wheat. Wheat doesn't. Wheat hasn't changed. It's not like a car or you know uh, an iPhone. It's like wheat is kind of wheat. Well, what's happened to wheat? The time price of wheat has fallen by 70, 80 percent. So it's been, it's just, we see it all over the place. So it's like we got on this trend. Can we continue to move on this trend? I would simply add to that that in the book, we have 18, 18 different data sets um, with some of the data going back to 1850. And uh, we found generally the, the, the same uh, relationship between population and, uh, and abundance. And here I want to bring in the word superabundance. It actually does have a meaning. So abundance can grow at three different speeds. Relative to population, abundance can grow at three different speeds. It can grow slower than population. We just call that increasing abundance. It can grow at the same rate as population, or it can grow at a faster rate than population. In all 18 data sets, we found that personal abundance is increasing at a faster rate than population. And that's what we call superabundance. And that tells us that on average, um, every human being is contributing more than they consume. They, they are the creators of the innovation. The difference between population growth and superabundance, that is the innovation which we bring into the world. So the, so the other thing that we, we did is we looked at this personal abundance. How much is each person's slice changing over time? But then you also have to consider how many slices there are. And the, the, I like to think about the size of the slice and then the size of the pizza. So everybody's slice is getting larger, but we're actually adding more people to the planet. So we're getting more slices. So we get this boom, boom effect. It gets larger in two dimensions. Personal abundance is increasing and population is increasing. So if we compare 1980 to 2018, we see this increase of about 500% increase in this global level of population. The size of the pie on a global level is increased by over 500%. So that's the, that's the way that we, we look at it. We think that that's the proper way to think about how to measure how much stuff we have. It's not counting up the number of barrels of oil and saying, well, we've got this, we, just, we got five loaves of bread and we consume one loaf a day, so we've only got five days left of bread. No, it's that bread continues to show up at the market. And these products and services will continue to show up in the market depending on the price. Are the prices for some of these goods, are they correct to the point that we can be confident? And I mean particular about externality. So you grow wheat, you grow it with artificial fertilizer that runs off into water that causes you know genetic abnormalities and other sicknesses in different people. Obviously, oil, the burning of fossil fuels, has large externalities in terms of global warming that could come back and be the kind of comeuppance of our abundance for so many generations. I, there, there's there's the price for many of these, and that doesn't even include subsidies and other distortions from government over the years about whether or not the price is actually factoring in the environmental impact or the shortages if we don't know how much something is, is it priced too low? Uh, and so the, the future generations won't have it. So how do we how do we have confidence in the prices? Well, I, I would simply say to, to that, I, I, I will take a first crack at the answer. And that is that in the absence of something like a global, uh, uh, you know, carbon tax, it's, it's difficult to really account for all the externalities or even some of the externalities. However, what we do see is that more abundant populations are much more concerned with their environment. If you look at the Yale Index of Environmental Quality, what you find is that the top of the table is always, without exception, dominated by rich, advanced economies, where people are so wealthy that they are able to part with some sliver of their incomes in order to 
um, for example, um, have better, uh, you know, more nature reserves, for example, or they uh, invest in uh, better um, scrubbers for CO2 emissions, or they are able to switch to nuclear energy, or they are able to invest more in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in clean rivers and protection of animals. So um, really, as far as I can tell, if you are concerned about environmental quality, you should try to get as rich as quickly as possible. And the alternatives, we can, we, we also have the alternatives. We know what happens when you have an economic catastrophe, like for example, recently in Venezuela. When you have a massive decline in GDP uh, per capita, what happens is, of course, is that you have much less money in order to invest in environmental protection or wildlife protection. Uh, the first thing that happened when uh, Venezuela had hyperinflation is that it slaughtered the animals in the zoo and they ate them. Similar thing happened in Zimbabwe. I was there in 2008 when they had hyperinflation. Hyperinflation in Zimbabwe was the second highest in world history. It, it hit 90 sextillion percent. And of course, money lost all of their meaning. These people were so desperately poor that they were slaughtering giraffes and rhinoceroses and 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 uh, and uh, elephants left and right in order to sell uh, their husks and eat their meat. Um, so abundance to me seems like a sure way to get to environmental quality as well. Another way in which you 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 protect the environment is that you have more money um, to invest in. Uh, new technologies of growing food. So instead of going and catching wild salmon, for example, you just grow salmon on aqua farms. Instead of catching wild shrimp, you grow them uh, in aqua farms. That would be a, that, that's a, that's a perfect example of human ingenuity and wealth protecting the environment. You know, the externality issue has always been a problem in economics. And, uh, uh, you know, anything we do is, is going to have some kind of externality, negative and, and positive. There, there are positive externalities as well. Here's what I would say about that for the negative externalities is I think a proxy to look at to say what effect are externalities having uh, on population is look at life expectancies. And as we grow, uh, why is it that if we're having all of these negative externalities, that life expectancy continues to increase? You would think that if these externalities are really harming population, that life expectancy would be going down with cancers and all of these other things. That's not to say that we don't have those problems. What, what I think we would argue is those problems seem to be becoming less and less of a problem. The other issue would be, how do you try to deal with an externality. And that typically has been, you look at these common property uh, situations you, and you attempt to institutionalize a, a property right over that. So everybody doesn't show up at the same lake to try to fish. You, be, you develop these mechanisms that allow us to be able to, to create a property right. And then you have the incentive to make that place clean and productive. Let people own things and they will make them clean and they will make them beautiful. I can tell you from a personal experience, having grown up in uh, communist Eastern Europe, uh, communism left behind it an unbelievable amount of environmental damage with which uh, we, we, well, we <laughs> my former compatriots in Eastern Europe are still struggling uh, precisely because, you know, everything was held in common. Nobody had any incentive to protect the environment. Environment became a dumping ground for the government, for the military. Nobody took care of anything. Um, and that changed very quickly after we trans transferred to democracy and to capitalism. I, I always think about when you see a place that's dirty, um, it's probably because nobody owns it. Find me a place that's that's uh, dirty that someone really owns it, and you gotta say, well, what's the deal? Because you just don't find those places. I have. Uh, I I also want to mention that, of course, once again, human ingenuity can help us to get around the problem of polluting of the planet, not just in the ways that I have already described, but for example, 
there are thousands of scientists working on new crops, GMO crops, uh, that will require less water, less pesticide, and um, uh, less, uh, uh, less, less fertilizer, right? If you can produce wheat and uh, corn uh, that basically doesn't, doesn't need these chemicals and doesn't need industrial produced fertilizer, then you can also prevent uh, the outflow of these chemicals into rivers and eventually into, into oceans. But who is going to have access to, te to that technology provided that we can develop it? Well, we are already developing it, but provided that it is, it is implemented on a large scale. First of all, it's going to be the rich farmers in the West who have the capital to do that. And it's going to take some time before it filters down to Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Whereas if these two places were rich, people could be buying into GMO crops immediately. Here in Hawaii, we've got, uh, where I live, we've got all these shrimp trucks, places that sell shrimp, you know, all around the island. It's like, you know, shrimp is not native to Hawaii. What, what's the deal? Well, you go out behind the truck <clears throat> and these guys have these little ponds set up and they're growing shrimp. Out, out behind their trucks and out behind their little restaurants. So being able to create this property right and, you know, I get, I get to own this land. I'm going to, I'm going to fill it up with water and fill it up with shrimp and I'm going to grow shrimp and turn around and, and sell them here. We are, we are so adaptive to an environment if we're given the ability to create a property right over something. Those property rights are also key to making the world cleaner. Are we ignoring the, the spiritual element in this, because it seems like we've just been talking about stuff and there's a lot of critiques that you hear from people and, and ones that I, you know, think have merit to say that, you know, just focusing your life around stuff. Do you have the new iPhone? We need a new iPhone with a better camera every two years with who knows how many different rare earth materials are put into that iPhone that may one day be sapped dry from those materials. We put our stuff, we put our soul into stuff and maybe we're not actually achieving a level of spiritual growth because stuff is so, is so unbelievably cheap. So buying your arguments and saying stuff is really cheap. You can buy a lot of stuff now, but are we really finding like kind of the spiritual growth that we need as human beings by just measuring how cheap stuff is? Well, I have never discussed this with Gail, so we may have two very different answers to this. But I would simply point out that I, I think that uh, uh, a decline in uh, spirituality or spirituality lacking in human lives, it's probably not a concern that is particularly new. Uh, people have been worrying about ignorance and degeneracy of the mores and morals um, for thousands of years. Uh, obviously, every individual and this is just my view. Um, uh, obviously, every individual can approach new technology and abundance from different perspectives. Some can make the best of it and lead the best life possible. And some people can waste it in a basement, you know, um, um, I don't know, um, doing part and, and watching Netflix on, on, <laughs> on, on uh, forever. But iPhone. So iPhone is not just a way of watching tic, uh, TikTok videos. It's also a way of allowing you to plug into the entirety of human knowledge, for example, which people didn't have. Um, there are now something like 50% of Africans have a, have a smartphone, right? Which, which previously would have been unimaginable by, you know, within, within a few years, just about every African will be able to do that. So instead of relying on a state which has never been able to provide you with good uh, education or, uh, or, um, uh, or, or having no access to libraries and things like that because you are a poor child, you now have access to the entirety of human information, human knowledge. That increases um, the spiritual the, the spiritual aspect of of superabundance if you are willing to go in that direction. So I, I would just add to Marion's comment about Africa. Uh, you know, there's more smartphones in Africa than there are toilets. <laughs> when people are given the choice between a smartphone and a phone and a toilet, they'll choose a smartphone because I think they understand this thing is has the ability to create much more value in my life. And um, you know. Uh, I'd go back to this original point that you made about spirituality and 
prosperity, physical prosperity, material prosperity. It's really hard to be spiritual if you're hungry. And what we don't realize, we do, what we don't appreciate here in the West is how hungry we used to be and how hunger is still a, a large problem for many human beings. If you can reduce the time it takes for someone to work, to just buy their food, if you can reduce that by two or three or four hours a day, in India, it's fallen by six hours a day since 1960. So that's six hours now that I'm not working. I'm not hungry. So can I now pursue this creative thing? Yeah, I, I got to have the time and I got I to gotta move up the Maslow hierarchy. I got to get up to the next level. Can we move people up to the next level? If we're innovating at this basic commodity level, what it suggests is People are not as hungry as they used to be, and now they have this time to pursue these things. And it's true. Uh, you know, I might be pursuing my video game in the basement, but there's another guy down the street that's trying to code up this new app that's going to create this thing that's going to be phenomenal or write this song or combine these elements in a new way that's going to make transparent aluminum. You know, I think they actually have done that. Uh, but but uh, I hope... Um, I hope you know our, your listeners appreciate that. Look, we're lifting people from the bottom at this phenomenal rate, and those people now can contribute. They can contribute with their ideas and their their work that the rest of us get to benefit because that that contribution comes in the form of knowledge. And knowledge, as Romer makes clear to us, has this feature that I can share it and I don't lose it. So instead of be, being competitors, we're now collaborators in this pursuit of knowledge that all of us get to share and benefit from. So all of us are, have this ability to lift one another with these little bits and pieces that we can discover and create and share. Uh, not to beat this particular subject to death, but you know I like Wagner, and uh, <laughs> Wagner built an opera house in Bayreuth in, uh, in, uh, in, in Bavaria in the late uh, 19th century so that his operas could be could be shown there and uh, if you were a very very wealthy european maybe top one percent maybe you could think about going to bayreuth once in your life in order to listen to wagner's ring i have the entire ring um which is 14 hours of uh, of music on on uh, uh, on streaming or on disc that i have bought for less than a hundred dollars and now i can listen to anytime i please that's that's modernity that's prosperity it makes something that used to be pure luxury the very definition of luxury within the grasp of anybody on a minimum wage really i mean if you are making 15 dollars an hour uh, it takes you what seven hours to buy the entire ring cycle um just one example of how how much more abundant we are thanks for listening if you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.com.